Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Jim? Hi, Maeve. Hi, how are you? I'm okay. How are you? Um, thanks so much for having me back again. Oh, yeah. Thank mm-hmm. you for having. Uh, wait. Oh, Thank Jim. you for coming back and talking to us. For your podcast, Social Distance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maeve, thank you for coming on Social Distance, the Atlantic's podcast about the pandemic. I'm James Hamblin. I'm a staff writer, joined by Maeve Higgins, who is a writer and comedian and podcast mm-hmm. host and mm-hmm. how author. And uh, we are not joined today by Catherine Wells, who um, is in Texas right now. Oh, I hope she's okay down there. Yeah, it's very unprecedentedly snowy and cold, and there's been a lot of power outages, as I'm sure people have heard. But, uh, I think oh. she's okay. I spoke with her yesterday, and she didn't seem to be hypothermic. I mean, even the fact that you were able to speak to her is good. I hope you didn't waste your time with loads of chit chat because some <laughs> people's phones, like their batteries are low and oh. Yeah, and... <laughs> no. Yeah, it was straight to business. <laughs> but that's how I prefer Hi. to do things. Hi, Catherine. Just I need to borrow it. some money. I know you're in Texas at the moment, but I, I, I need some money. It was not the nature of the call. <laughs> um, it was just business. But uh, she is alive and well and her show is... Uh, is going along swimmingly, the experiment. Yeah, it's great. Uh, co-production with WNYC. Probably everyone has seen it on like the homepage of their uh, podcast app. It's a really good show. And, um, you know, it's all about the holes in America. <laughs> and it's making yeah. me think, yikes. Yeah, yeah. We are, our heat is out and there's a, a repair person coming to work on our heat and when that person arrives Moses will bark loudly and I'll try to keep that from interrupting our conversation right. but yeah I don't think you should leave it up to Moses to instruct this repair person I feel like you should explain to them what the problem is well he has a good eye for <laughs> ventilation systems yeah and heat exchangers he's and he's I like think... led by the head you're more the heart <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's perfectly us. Um, how are the cows where you are? Yeah. <laughs> the cows are fine. The hens are fine. I mean, my parents got four hens back in March. They always keep hens, but these are the most coddled of all because they haven't been exposed <laughs> to any strangers. And they're totally besotted with my father. And they've continued to lay through the winter. So Wow. Wait, does that mean they just follow him around? Yeah, they follow him around and they call him and they're just very happy, unafraid little creatures. Like if you walk up close to them, they crouch down so you can pick them up easier. And then they just <laughs> quite happily sit in your arms. <laughs> wow. wow. So yeah, they're huh. cute. They're lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Who are they named after? Well, my mother, when we were kids, used to name our animals after my dad's ex-girlfriends, which is very ungenerous. So <laughs> we had two pigs and they were named, I won't say the names, but 
they were sure. you know, women's names. Um, huh. And, you know, then my mom would get a great kick out of saying things like, oh, somebody's really piling on the pounds or, you know, just. Right, right. Uh, but these these hens don't actually have any names. One is called the independent hen and then the others are just like the hens. Oh, wow. Well, I, I feel like I have an idea for what you could do in terms of naming the independent hen. Go on. Um, <laughs> you want to call her Jim? <laughs> I shouldn't have to say it. The little yeah. red hen. <laughs> yeah. I'll just leave it to you to do the right thing here. <laughs> you were waving it over my head that I had never had a hen named after me. <laughs> oh my God. I completely forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. And now it seems you have four hens on your hands yeah. with no names. And there's I a good opportunity here. To yeah. Make that yeah. I forgot one of the listeners named their hen. Oh, there's your delivery man. Okay. No, actually, he's being pretty chill right now. Yeah. Okay, good. So I find a way to mention hens in almost every episode. We had the hen named after me. Now, maybe I'm going to talk to my dad about naming one after you. But let's get to the uh, the show, which is, um, as you know, my position as co-host allows me to rifle through your mailbag. And I have some questions from listeners. Are you ready, Jim? I'm very ready, Maeve. Okay, this question is from Barbara. Now that I've had my first vaccine shot, what can and can't I do starting two weeks after the second shot? I am confused. There's a lot of information I've been hearing. Can I still acquire COVID, just a milder case? Can I still spread COVID? Is it safe to visit my grandchildren? Am I now a risk to them? These are all the most important questions of the pandemic right now, and there are a lot of unknowns there. But I can say what we know, which is that the guidance right now is that people are probably almost certainly protected from severe disease and can't likely transmit the virus for long, but we don't know that yet. So you're mm -hmm. still supposed to behave as though you could transmit it. It's my hope and everyone's hope that uh, soon we'll have the evidence that shows that you can't transmit the virus after you've been mm -hmm. vaccinated, because that would completely change the game if you know you can carry it and transmit it to any significant degree. Mm -hmm. um, if that's the case, it would mean that we really can't behave like pre-pandemic times until pretty much everyone is vaccinated. But if we find that just no one is transmitting this virus and protection is holding up really well after vaccination, then you'll start to see policies that just say, you know, you can do certain things once you've been vaccinated that you couldn't do before. We talked a little bit about this and how that could potentially be problematic, um, but that's still the state of things right now. Okay. Just keep keep going as if you haven't been vaccinated, but that shouldn't be the case for very long. Okay, so in Barbara's case, should she wait to visit her grandchildren or... Could she go and social distance and mask? Once you've been vaccinated, uh, it should be extremely safe to visit grandchildren. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if you're just talking about kids who are at extremely low risk already, um, mm -hmm. and then with a vaccinated older person, that should be an extremely low risk, very safe scenario. Okay. And that's the best I can say. I don't want to, I, I can't really tell people specifically exactly what they should do. Mm -hmm. um, but I can 
assess risk. So I hope that's helpful. Thanks, Jim. Um, here's another question. This is from Jane. As I understand it, the 1918 pandemic apparently ended when the virus mutated to become less deadly and turned into kind of a normal flu. Is there any chance of that happening with the coronavirus? These are great questions. I mean, that mm -hmm. is the leading hypothesis of what will happen with this virus and has mm -hmm. been for a while. That It's so widespread, it's going to become endemic. We're not going to eradicate it totally. And we mm -hmm. know it, it, it mutates and evolves and then that will keep happening. Um, mm -hmm. These things tend to mutate in a way that makes them less deadly over time, just because that's how evolution tends to work. Viruses don't have an interest in killing their host. So it would likely go in that direction, but it could, you know, as long as it's out there circulating to any significant degree, you could see strains pop up that are very deadly. As we see with flu, there'll be certain years where it's much worse than others. And the fact that that capacity will still be out there is mm -hmm. what I think warrants a lot of attention now as we think about how we're vaccinating the world or not vaccinating the world. Um, okay, do you have time for one last question? This is an interesting one as well, actually. It comes from Sean. Uh, my wife, Molly, and I had a baby two weeks ago. Congratulations. And it got me thinking about a baby's developing immune system. Your favorite thing, Jim. We've been isolated in Queens for the entire pregnancy. We're not going to start going out and about and exposing ourselves and the baby to COVID and whatever else just for the heck of it. But there is a point months down the road where not exposing our child to regular environmental germs may have a longer term detrimental effect. Your thoughts? <laughs> Man, uh, people are asking the biggest questions. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, if Catherine were here, she would be telling me to give a one or two word answers. But I I'll try to keep it brief. I mean, this okay. sort of touches on what I wrote about in my book book about the you know challenges of being removed from the environment and we will hopefully before too long be fortunate enough to think about how to you know safely reintroduce kids to all the important exposures of the world yeah i think sean and molly i'm guessing are just talking about like i don't know bringing them and like sitting them into those baby swings in the park in the summertime or maybe like traveling around the city a little bit, like just regular baby stuff. <laughs> regular baby <laughs> stuff. Yeah, no, everyone knows that's important, I think, right? That mm -hmm. is part of building your immune system and how your body learns to not be allergic to some things and to be allergic or to try to eradicate other things that are harmful to you and calibrates the system so that it's recognizing the bad stuff and not acting up against the good stuff. So it'll be interesting to see what the effects of this sort of isolation have been on the coming generation. But I hope soon that everybody's able to get back out in the world and yeah. play just as normal. I'm feeling yeah. optimistic about the summer. Oh, you are? So that's you're working on a piece about that right now. That's exciting. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a cautious optimism, but I want to go back to the park and use the swings. <laughs> You're going to be bulldozing the other kids out of the way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jim, I mean, we should say this is also pertinent to what we're going to talk about today. And neither you nor I have children. And, you know, my favorite joke here that we know of. 
Uh huh. That is your. F- it's either that or you <laughs> say that I'm a child. So <laughs> between the two, <laughs> those are my two favorite jokes. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, but so we, you know, we don't, right? We're not parents, but no, no. But um, yeah, we, that that has made the pandemic much easier on us. I think so too. <laughs> it yeah. Was very well but put. For more nuance on this, um. <laughs> No, I feel like we are at the stage of the pandemic where uh, rates of disease are falling, threat of the immediate threats of the virus are becoming less, and we're moving into dealing with other effects of this past year Mm -hmm. on health and well-being, economics, and so many other issues that Mm -hmm. are direct effects of the pandemic. But we wanted to zoom in on a specific question this week. The jobs report in the U.S. tells us a bit about how people are doing each month. And the most recent one had a striking data point. 275,000 women left the workforce and 71,000 men left the workforce. That's four times as many women as men. And that isn't an isolated stat. Women have had a bigger burden on them in the pandemic in many ways. Um, we've talked about it a little bit, but we wanted to come back to how that disparity has played out over the course of the past year. You weren't here for it back then, but we spoke with Helen Lewis, who's an Atlantic staff writer based in London, about mm-hmm. what the pandemic held for women. And it seems many of her predictions came to pass. And I wanted to follow up with her and see how she's feeling about all that. Oh, good. Excellent. Let's give her a call. Hi, Helen. Hello. Hi, Helen. It's Maeve and Jim. Hello. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's been almost a year since we spoke to you. Right. Has anything happened in that time at all? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Time is so distorted. Um, Feels like it could have been five minutes or 10 years. But you made some pretty prescient predictions about how the pandemic would have uh, different uh, impact on uh, women and men and how that would play out in all different kinds of ways. And we kind of wanted to check back in with you and see how you were feeling about those predictions. Yeah, I have an unfortunate record in journalism, which is that only my bad predictions come true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and so last um, March, I wrote a piece called um, The Coronavirus is a Disaster for Feminism. Uh, and the reason that I said that was that I thought, well, you know what, it'd be really interesting to talk to uh, researchers who've looked into previous epidemics or you know, whatever size, um, and talk to them about what the, what the gender dimensions of that were. So um, I don't know if you know over here, one of my friends is a writer called Caroline Criado Perez, who wrote a book called Invisible Women, which is about the fact that there's always a gender data gap across huge amounts of stuff, whether or not that's, you know, crash test dummies that are male body shapes, or whether or not it's the fact that lots of drugs are only tested on men or even only on male cells. And so there's this huge problem in the fact that public policy is based around data that is so heavily skewed towards men. And so I thought one of the ways that would be interesting to look at would be to say, well, when we look at the Ebola outbreak uh, or Zika or SARS or MERS, other respiratory viruses, you know, what are the effects of both of the disease itself and also the social effects that you see after it? You know, how does that split in, in gender terms? 
Uh, and unfortunately, the result came back. Well, it, you know, it's it, it it's very difficult for women um, when schools close. And, you know, the types of jobs that women do are, are differently affected by pandemic responses. So I made this prediction, really, that for lots of heterosexual couples, at least, there would be a return to the kind of breadwinner homemaker divide, you know, the kind of 1950s model um, of, mm-hmm. of what a husband and wife do, simply because men are much more likely to work full time. They're much more likely in a straight couple to be the higher earner. It makes sense on a couple level if you're really worried about you know, one of you is going to lose your job, protect the man's job. Similarly, if you've got kids at home and you're homeschooling, protect the man's job. Um, and, 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 and obviously the effects for single parents, the majority of whom are women, are far, far worse. Um, but it's, it's very obvious that, you know, having all of the support that was just about keeping women in the workforce, although many of them are already finding it a struggle, for example, grandparents and extended family and friends, you know, having all of that taken away as well as schools and maybe childcare and nurseries, it's just being like, repeatedly punched in the face by a giant bear effectively for women in this crisis oh my god that's a striking image it really is and like the numbers are massive in america it's like 2.4 million women have exited the workforce since you wrote that piece compared with less than 1.8 million men almost 1 million mothers have left the workforce with black mothers hispanic mothers and single mothers among the hardest hit yeah, and I don't think that's going to be a trend. You know, I think we're going to see the results of this for for years and years. So one of the things that this will have a long-term effect on both in Britain and the US is pension contributions, social security contributions. If you're not in work, if you're not paying into that system, it can really affect, you know, what, what you money you have when you retire. And one of the biggest predictors of poverty in older women is getting divorced because they lose access to their husband's pension and they may have had to take a, a career break themselves. Well, if far more people have had to take a career break or one has been forced on them by being fired, that has effects for the rest of their lives. You know, it's not just about the fact that you're going to find it quite a sketchy next year or two as you struggle to you know, make ends meet. It's going to have an impact until you're dead, essentially. Right. Is it playing out to the same degree that you expected? Is it worse than you had imagined it's a it's a tough question to untangle because different countries have had very different responses both at the macro level in terms of being able to contain the coronavirus and in the policy response level and the us and to a lesser extent the uk are at the center of a perfect storm which is that they have not at all well controlled their infection levels you know in contrast to somewhere like Australia, which was able to impose quarantines and has really kept its numbers rates very low and therefore has kept things much more open. And mm-hmm. you know that then, as I say, you know, feeds into the other half of the problem, which is that you know you only if you if your case rates got to a certain amount, you know, you have to close schools. Britain has been much more reluctant to close schools than America, but nonetheless, they are currently closed now for all except vulnerable children. Mm-hmm. So the US is in this particular bad situation of the fact that you know it has very little federally funded leave. You know, there's very your employment rights situation is very low, and it's got a pandemic that has been raging absolutely out of control. So I think American mothers are probably one of the worst hit sets in the world, really. Um, more so the ones in countries which are poorer than America, but have managed their pandemics better. Right. Um, now Biden has a recovery plan with some proposals to help working families. What do you think would be most important or you know, it, it, in a reasonable way, logistically, what's possible and what could be done in coming weeks and months to try to stem some of this damage? 
I mean, the Biden proposals are interesting. So there's an $8,000 tax credit to spend on childcare. Also, this idea of a much greater entitlement to paid sick leave, both of which would be hugely beneficial, not just for the individual people involved, but also the social ability to control the pandemic, right? So one of the problems consistently has been the idea that you have to stay at home, you have to self-isolate, which is, you know, if you've got a job like ours and an understanding employer, you know, you can maybe even work from home if you're asymptomatic. But if you're a somebody in a precarious, low-paid job, you can't do that. And so quite a lot of pandemic infection has been driven by people who are too poor to do the socially responsible thing, the thing that we would want them to do. So I'm hopeful that it's possible for the Biden team to make a case that this isn't kind of, you know, feminist special pleading. This is all about actually helping the whole society to manage the pandemic better. The one thing that the US has been really bad at is um, opening schools. And I don't know whether or not that is a, a lack of will a reflection of the fact that you're looking at individual state level decisions, um, the fact that the teaching unions have been very reluctant because there you know, are huge fears about whether or not workers will be protected if they go back. But other countries have been much more aggressive about saying, you know, children really suffer when they're out of school. This is the first thing that we will reopen and the last thing that will close. Um, and I think that America has really suffered from that. And, you know, it, the interesting thing when you look at the small more fine-grained details of which women are doing worse is it actually women in the sort of late 30s and 40s seem particularly badly hit because they're often the ones with you know a nine-year-old a six-year-old and a three-year-old and that's the point at which trying to do that and homeworking becomes <laughs> just physically impossible um yeah. it, you know uh, the, the new york times has done a really good study have you seen this they did the kind of primal scream thing where they had a, a helpline where people could just phone up and scream um, yeah, <laughs> if, the thing, if they had the time, <laughs> right? They but could the, get a second. <laughs> that's not a solution. No, it's not a. It's, but I imagine a lot of people found it very um, therapeutic. But like one of the pictures in the report that went with it was really fascinating. It was a, of a guy sitting in his home office, and then a woman on the phone doing a work call while also trying to potty train the toddler. And people were very hard on the guy. And actually, if you read the story, he was working three jobs. But but that is exactly the picture that I'm talking about. You've ended up with breadwinner homemaker, like without anybody really wanting that to happen. And I think that there will be a lot of women who feel really sore about that, but they work really hard. You know, women are now more likely to go to college than men in America. You know, these are we're looking at generations of women for whom having a good job and a profession has been an important part of their life, as well as having a family. And they've been told really by their government and by society that, you know, sorry, that's we'll get to that if we can, basically. Yeah. I think in the earlier days, there was kind of a, well, like the partner has to help and this is about, but it's structural. It's not like, oh, me and my husband need to work it out. It's way bigger than that. And when you think of how long it took to get to the point where women were working and were reaching some kind of, you know, equal rate, like we got this stat, right? The ratio of women working has now fallen to its lowest point since 1988. So it is setting us back. Well, the interesting thing is that the responses you get tend to fall into a couple of different camps, one of which is you shouldn't have had kids if you didn't want to look after them. And like what that essentially is saying is that you shouldn't have had kids if you weren't prepared for the possibility of an unprecedented in your lifetime global <laughs> pandemic. Um, <laughs> Which, you know, is is an argument. It's not a particularly good argument. But, you know, these were often families who were coping before. 
Um, you yeah, know, often finding it hard, but they had a grandparent who helped out after school, they had an after school club, you know, whatever it might be. And this, that all just got completely smashed apart by the sort of ban on household mixing and the closing of schools. You know, who plans to have a child when there's no school for a year? That's just not, if you're talking about developed countries, a, a thing that you would ever think would happen. And then the right. second thing is, yeah, why don't you ask your partner to pull his finger out? And like, A, men by and large aren't lazy. The small proportion of them that are lazy, we Atlantic had a very good article about this. You know, it's often because you've told from birth that you, it's not your job to clean up after yourself, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So for the, the small percentage of men who are a bit rubbish, it's going to take a lot more than just kind of, could you do that uh, to yeah. turn it round? But also to go back to my point, you know, there are yep. lots and lots of men who are working flat out, just doing a different bit of that part of that puzzle you know they're the one that's answering an email at 1am or they're the one who's trying to take on a side job as a delivery driver or whatever it might be mm-hmm. it's just that it's 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 ended up being kind of carved in in two and the interesting thing about this recession has been that it has been female-led whereas the post-2008 one you know men are more likely to work in those cyclical industries but what's led to the drop in female employment has been kind of in-person working the kind of caring jobs hospitality jobs that women are overrepresented in and because women are overrepresented in those sectors, those are craply paid sectors. Like if you want to make a sector get worse paid, make the majority workers in it female, right? You can look at that with mm-hmm. teaching, with medicine or with computer coding. You know, things that started out as being very male have ended up being much more female. And as a result, the prestige and money in them has kind of ebbed away. You mentioned the phenomenon of invisible women and the idea that we haven't been collecting data on women. Are you hopeful that we're learning from this pandemic and actually recording the experiences of women? Well, I mean, given we didn't learn from <laughs> why are you laughing? And, and SARS, it's it's. I'm, 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 no, I am an optimist, and actually, Claire mm-hmm. Wenham, one of the researchers that I interviewed uh, in that piece, has been collecting. Um, data. It's things like the Zoe app, the COVID symptom tracking app here in the UK have been recording people's symptoms. And one of the things they also record is, is, is sex differences. And at the Oxford University study, which has just published this week, uh, which has changed the priority for the UK vaccine program, actually. So an, an additional, I think, 1.4 million people have been told to shield. Some of those have already had the vaccine. Some of those have been moved up the priority list for the vaccine. That has recorded both sex and race. So we know that... Um, mm. Uh, people from racial minorities are much more likely to die of COVID. And again, some of that is perhaps, we don't know, perhaps genetic. Some of it's perhaps to do with living in multi-generational households or more likely to work in workplaces where there are bad safety regulations, whatever it might be. But we do know that um, Black and Asian people in Britain have been dying at higher proportions. And so that has now factored into the public policy response in what I think is a usefully nebulous way, right? Because I think it would cause an enormous backlash to say overtly that you were putting minority people to the front of the queue. Um, But what's happened is that they have been assessed as part of the, you know, multitudinous number of things, including do you have diabetes, you know, do you have a high body mass index, whatever it might be, into this model, and therefore advised to shield or, or bumped up the queue. So, you know, we definitely do have just a lot more information in this pandemic than we've ever had before. You know, there are so many, you know, the fact that things like dexamethasone uh, and some of the, um, I was going to say some of the rheumatoid arthritis drugs, um, but James, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that have proved to be really good um, for, for treatment. You know, those have come about due to the fact that we've just had a lot of researchers from a lot of countries talking to each other and recording more stuff than they have ever done before. Yeah, I think those as people swing into like the the serious phases, the cytokine storms using using steroids have proven helpful to stopping that decline. Uh, I guess my my final 
thought on coming back to the note of potential hope in this. <laughs> um, it seems that there is a lot more flexibility in a lot of jobs now in terms of working from home. Do you think if that persists and people have more flexibility in coming years and then all of a sudden, you know, the schools are open and things are back to quote unquote normal, the ultimate effect could be good for parents. You know, they would, ha it would be easier to be a parent if it was more easier flexible. to work from home and spend yeah. more time. I agree. Kids. I think the where people have seen optimism, that's exactly the point where they have, is that people were so resistant to working from home or even hybrid working um, because it was seen as being incredibly disruptive to the office. And now, you know, you get a lot of white collar employers have gone, I'm actually, you know, you don't get a choice from this, you're you're working from home. So it's it's overcome the kind of stick in the mud innately, like, but we, you know, this is the way we've always done it, resistance to trying new things. And I do think for a lot of people that maybe some kind of more hybrid model which because of the problems of housing shortages and cities you know being very high um rents and mortgages in, within any reasonable distance of workplace you know lots of people were doing long long commutes before this um and actually just taking those out of their lives might give them you know 10 hours a week back um so I, i'm hopeful on that score i'm also hopeful that we slightly normalize the idea that you can't hide your kids away that it is acceptable <laughs> to say yeah <laughs> I, you know, I i'm sorry i'm I'm in a meeting hold on i'm just gonna have to go and deal with this or whatever it might be or it's not inconvenient for me to talk at this time um right and and i that's the bit that gives me a certain amount of hope my worry had always been that when we returned to the office if things started opening up before schools and nurseries were open that you'd end up with a kind of two-tier office where all the big guys in charge and then are more likely to be guys come back and make all the decisions including decisions about who might have to be laid off and and that it that, that kind of created an invisible strata in the workforce where, where working parents were really kind of shafted versus you have senior guys who maybe actually earn enough that they've got to stay at home's partner, um, mm -hmm. not really understanding those, those problems. But I mean, I, you know, just when we have our Atlantic all hand zooms, like I'm loving seeing everybody's kids. Oh yeah. yeah it's wonderful. It's really nice. Do you remember isn't it? the, <laughs> do you remember <laughs> the uh, BBC segment from a, a couple years ago where a fellow was doing a, a hit in his home office? The Korean expert, yeah. Yeah, and and his daughter. <laughs> she came marching in. <laughs> and it was, so, it was so unique. And now I feel like that sort of thing happens all the time and it's fine and normal. Um, maybe I'm being too naive to think that that would persist. I think it's certainly, it's not seen as being unprofessional in the same way that it was before, mm. right? Like we've just had to change our expectations. I wonder if it all might also change expectations about office wear and about the fact that like this kind of, the smart office may now seem just kind of slightly old fashioned. My caveat, not to be Debbie Downer, as I always come uh, no, on no, please, in this podcast and say, we're, uh, we're talking really here about professional jobs. And, you know, places where you've got some kind of leverage because they've invested money in training you, you've got an education, they want to keep you. I'm not sure mm. how much this applies to you if you're a, you know, Amazon warehouse worker. Oh, um, right. Like okay. that, that segment of the economy where you are to them easily replaceable, you therefore just do not have, you know, I, and this has been a, a huge issue for companies for years, right? I mean, America has no federally mandated maternity leave, which still blows my freaking mind. Um, yeah. But it's like the number one complaint of small businesses in Britain is maternity leave is really expensive. We're having to pay for this. So I think that is still going to be a, a huge problem coming out the other side of this is that companies be like, we've had a really hard couple of years. How, why are we also having to pay for, for women to have kids is a thing that lots of people think and they know not 
to say it out loud now, mm-hmm. but it doesn't stop them taking that into account when they're making hiring decisions and decisions about redundancies, I think. Mm-hmm. So the idea of yeah, working from home somehow making life easier for parents in coming years would also exacerbate disparities. But let's focus on the on the cute kids because the cute kids are a good and nice <laughs> thing, and we can't be miserable all the time. And also, the fact is that you know, having had this stuff brought so much out in the open in the U.S., I think has been really helpful. You know, this was stuff that that, that was absolutely part of the second wave feminist movement in the U.K. Mm-hmm. And because of the, you know, we're a kind of ish social democratic country whereas america has has been much more to the right than us you know it's been seen all the time that children are your problem like you've had children therefore everything that comes from that like you have to deal with it personally or as a couple and i think that this has kind of made people reassess that and kind of go is that really fair is that a good bargain like am i getting value for money from my taxes is it you know reasonable to ask all of this stuff and i think that's my optimistic takeaway from this is that actually it has put childcare and elderly care on the political agenda in a way that it has not been for some time in America. Yeah. That's a hopeful note. Uh, thank you for, for that. Yeah. I was thinking while you were mentioning about the people going back to the office being the higher ups and usually that scene from baby boom, you know, where Diane Keaton, like weirdly inherits a baby and then they have to like bring the baby into it it's just like that was probably 1988 where we were at the same level as we are now so oh. right and but 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 that, remember that like do you also remember the great film three men and a baby the oh, premise yeah. of which is <laughs> <Classic>. like <laughs> ben confronted with a baby would just freak out and have no idea what to do <laughs> and i think much as i think you know there's one of tom Selleck's career highs that performance i think in a way that seems quite outdated now like among the men i know i don't think that they particularly like or appreciate that stereotype of like the klutzy dad who has absolutely no idea what's going on right <laughs> and he was an architect in that movie and he was just like oh, i guess i better get the baby a hard hat and bring her to the building site so it made no sense <laughs> I think some I, of that might have been for comic effect. Whoa. No, it, was a document- a this yeah. is, it was a documentary. It was a searing oh, was portrayal of man's inability story. to parent a baby, <laughs> much as the Arnold Schwarzenegger documentary Junior really had some important <laughs> things to say about male reproductive <laughs> issues. Full House yeah. was even the same premise, I guess. There were a bunch of oh, guys trying to raise kids. And and you take that all the way through to Knocked Up, which is in this millennia, right? Like the idea that men are sort of adult babies themselves and therefore can't have anything to do with babies is like a longstanding comic staple that, I don't know, I think it's kind of offensive to men. But men, you know, aren't aren't Mm. that upset about it. So maybe I should. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) In these cases, how much is it funny because it's true or how much is it... (laughs) perpetuated because no I was you know my dad when he went to work you know in construction he had some nappy pins on his overalls and got like mercilessly slagged off about that forever and that was in like 1982 or something so of course like dads have always taken care of their kids even that's sweet (laughs) my dad used to um come home for lunch apparently when my elder sister was young and he used to go go back to work with food all down one side of him (laughs) which is a kind of like beautiful image but yeah but but my my friend tom who works for my old uh, workplace in new states when i used to joke when he he took several months of um paternity leave like parental leave and he was like shall i do a column that's called competent dad 
Because all of the comments, like, do you remember that whole vogue of all those columns that were like, she's left me at home for the first time with the children. Like, how am I going to survive till 6 p.m.? And it was going to be like that, but like an adult. So obviously he would cope. He was he was a human. That would be a great name. <laughs> it would be a great name for a magazine. I could see myself <laughs> picking it out of my mailbox and then sitting and reading it on my stoop. Very... <laughs> You know, very visibly, just so people could see that I was reading Competent Dad. I would read any, like, all of the competent chain of spinoffs, like Competent Politician, <laughs> comp- like, you know, Competent Union Leader, Competent Celebrity. I think it would be very soothing right now. It's like those Four Dummies books. Yeah. It, it, this is an attainable goal, just competence, not, <laughs> Basic not the competence. best. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Helen, thank you so much for joining us again on the show, uh, and I hope... The pandemic doesn't last so long that we have to talk in another year about yeah, how it's See you in 2022. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thanks, Helen. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. How are you feeling after that discussion? You ready to adapt a set of quadruplets and make a show for television? Yeah, I think just for comedic effect, <laughs> I think. I think sometimes, you know, men embrace that stereotype because it sort of absolves you of responsibility <laughs> oh yeah i mean i do that with stuff all the time i pretend i can't really do it so oh, yeah? like what what's an example washing up oh <laughs> <laughs> i yeah. i was like oh god i'm just kind of creative so i can't really do mm-hmm. practical things so i think that was a helpful conversation and i uh, hope that we uh don't lose track of this as one of the effects of the pandemic mm-hmm. that will persist even after the virus is not really at the front of our minds. I know. I mean, the women listening are, are not going to forget this quickly. And as Helen said, it's like, there are long-term effects. Do you want to do the credits, Maeve? Sure. Um, Social Distance is produced by Kevin Townsend with help from senior producer AC Valdez. Write us at socialdistance at theatlantic.com or leave us a voicemail at 202-642-6487. If you like this show and want access to all of The Atlantic's journalism, the best way to do that is by subscribing at theatlantic.com slash support us. And remember that we have a survey that uh, The Atlantic put together for us. We love making this show and it helps to know who we're making it for. So if you go to theatlantic.com slash social distance survey and answer a few quick questions, we'd really appreciate it. I'll talk to you later, Maeve. Yeah, Jim, I'll talk to you later. Thanks for everything. I'm looking forward to seeing pictures of my hen. (laughs) I'll send you the independent hen. (laughs) Now known as James Hamblin, Esquire. Okay, bye. Bye, Jim. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.